Hello, everyone. Before we get started with today's show, I just got a quick announcement up top. Starting tomorrow, October 6th at 7 p.m. Pacific time, our very own Casey is going to be providing a free three-week Enneagram class uh, via Zoom. If you're interested at all, please check the show notes at irenacast.com slash 187, and you'll find all the information that you need to get a hold of Casey and be a part of that class. It starts tomorrow. If you're listening to this on the day it posts, uh, if you listen to this after the fact and you might want to get in, you can still email Casey and figure out maybe you can kind of get in for the last couple weeks. Uh, We apologize for the last minute notice, but we want to make sure that this is an opportunity that our listeners get to take advantage of. And don't forget, sign up for email list. All the information for these classes and everything will be on that as well. So please make sure that you do that. So we wanted to put that at the top of the show because it's happening so quickly. So again, if you are interested, go to the show notes at rentacast.com slash 187, and there'll be some information on how you can get a part of that Enneagram class that starts tomorrow. So without any further ado, here is today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenicast, a group of folks leaning into our progressive Christian imagination. I'm Jeff. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. This is Rajiv. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we provoke conversations for shifting perspective on theology and culture. Thank you for joining us. This week, we continue our series on beyond the binary of reconstruction and deconstruction, or is it deconstruction and reconstruction? It's beyond the binary. Exactly. It doesn't matter what order it is because we are <laughs> we are in the the zone of those two things, I guess. Uh, we're going to continue the conversation today by talking about self. Uh, many of us come from backgrounds that teach us to deny ourselves, and I think that that's an important step in this journey. So we're going to be discussing that, and uh, it'll it'll be interesting. And uh, for our segment, we're going to bring back an old one called "Title Me This," and that should be a lot of fun. So. Let's just get into it. The self. I think one thing, and Bonnie, I think it was you said this as we were kind of planning what this conversation was going to look like. It's it's even in our, in our notes here. You know, you put like the adolescent development of it all, and I think that's a really apt way to describe, at least for me, my journey with self during this process of deconstruction and reconstruction. That needed place of selfish adolescence, that healthy selfishness. So maybe that's a good place to start. Unpack that a little bit, what you meant by that. You know, I think Debbie Glander in uh, in the first episode of this Beyond the Binary of Deconstruction and Reconstruction, we talked with Debbie Glander, who is a therapist and also has studied a lot about human development. And and she really brought forward some things that I hadn't really thought about before using Eric Erickson and his stages of human development that, you know, at each of these stages, there's work to do in each stage in order to be able to complete the work of the stage and then move into the next stage of development. And we we develop from the time we're born all the way until our elder years. It's not just an adolescent period of development. But yeah, like she focused in on like that that stage of adolescence where the the work is to form a self and an identity and to feel really grounded and rooted in that self and identity in order to then be able to face adult life. And how many of us in our traditions 
like are coming to realize that that was denied us completely. Not only did we just not not form well as adolescents because of the messages that we received from our communities, but that the work of that developmental stage was completely denied us. Like we were in some ways betrayed by the adults in our lives who should have helped us to grow in that stage of development. So just like in the early toddler years where selfishness is a really important part of growth and development, it is also true in those teen years. And it was considered one of the cardinal sins to not only think that you have a self, but to esteem oneself. And that that messes people up. And and when the self is talked about, the self is entirely corrupt and not to be trusted. I mean, it's this weird thing. Yeah, there's like, there isn't a self, but then again, there is, and it's not any good. Which for, as I mean, as teenagers, as junior hires, right, when you're hearing these things, you already believe these things about yourself without an adult telling you that, right? You're going through puberty. All of these new things are happening. Your relationships are changing in terms of, I know for many young people, when you go that you take that transition from junior high to high school, you lose your friends a lot of times, right? Because you're you're shifting, things are changing. And it's such a a raw time, a very vulnerable time, and to have the adults in your life saying to you, you are bad and broken, you are not whole, you sort of lean into that. I At least I feel like I did. I was like, oh yeah, you're speaking my jam. I mean, I'm an Enneagram 4, right? In general, I feel that way. But to have adults in your life speaking to those things, I think does something significant to, to, your, to your being. I think kind of we ended our last conversation in part four of this on talking about the self a little bit and i think casey you said something that made me feel uncomfortable not because i don't even know if i agree or disagree but that idea of like just trusting yourself trusting yourself and how difficult that is when you come from a place like we've all said so far is that you're taught to deny yourself you're taught to push those things under uh so so where how do you develop that muscle of learning to trust yourself and knowing and discerning whether that's a good thing, right? Because there's a lot of people in the world, like I mentioned last time we talked, that are trusting themselves. And they're doing so in a way that's harming others because they know their body and they don't need this vaccine or they don't need this or whatever. And how do we, I don't know, I, I don't know, I, I struggle with how to maneuver through that and how to more in the way of like communicating that to others, like on, on, in this platform and where we're talking this, like, so where, where do we draw the line for the self? And then where does the self fall in, in terms of all the other ways that we discern our place in the world? Well, I think, you know, talk, the, the thing you're talking about, Jeff, there with these other people in the world who are quote, trusting themselves and doing these weird things in the political and, and healthcare world, the, anti-vaxxers, anti-maskers as an example, what might be important for us to do in this conversation is to have in mind that in front of self is the authentic self. So there's, you know, behavior where you're living into the self that you've been handed by your environment, 
where you've been told this is who you are, this is how you're supposed to think, and then you act out of that thinking it's yourself because you haven't yet engaged in the work to pursue the authentic self. And I think we see, we're seeing that a lot in people being very loud about it uh, in multiple ways today. Plus, with the ubiquity of social media, everybody gets to act out of their, whether it's inauthentic or authentic selves. Or maybe I find that people acting out of their authentic selves aren't posting to the same degree that people who are acting out of their inauthentic selves maybe do. I, I have no animosity to people who post a lot on social media. Uh, I think it is an important form of expression, an important way of communicating. But I think it also can be part of the process of self-discovery and understanding. So what what I was hoping to lift up is as we engage, that we're more and more thoughtful as we evolve as individuals. So I, I don't want that to be misunderstood. I think that's a good point, Rajiv, around posting and who for whom are you speaking to, right? What what is your point in posting? I mean, when I'm when I talk about trusting self, myself did not need to post on Facebook. I mean, at some point, eventually, I did, but but um, my first response was to turn inward and to navigate what was truest for me and how to first trust that before I could give it to anybody else, right? And so I think that that's sort of what I'm talking to is there's a self in you that longs to be known and free. And that self is the one that you are willing to testify to, the one that is calling you to wholeness and to freedom, Um, the one that is not requiring anything of you but to find what is most true and is most liberating for you. I think that that is what I'm talking to. Whether you are an anti-vaxxer or not, this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the ability to say, here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other, right? That Luther quote. This is the important piece of, of who I am. This is the truth of my journey. Yeah, Casey, that voice, that inner voice that you speak about is is exactly the voice that we're told not to trust, yeah. right? And 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 it's it's a voice that's a lost. It's sometimes really lost in the cacophony of voices that have been injected into us by uh, by so many things, but um, certainly by the fundamentalist evangelical religious community. Um, but I think Jeff's question is. Is and the discomfort with trusting oneself, you know, there's a lot there to think about and consider. Because I think, first of all, we have not been allowed, if you've grown up or if you spent your adolescence in a high control environment, you're not allowed really to see yourself as a complex being. Like the self is reduced, you have a sinful nature. That's the bottom line. You're in need of salvation. That's as, that's as, that's as much self-exploration as you need to do, more or less. And that's a very reductive way to think about the self when we are so complex. There's so many layers to the self. And I think once we awaken, like part of the reconstruction process, for me anyway, was to awaken to the complexity to like how I am so much, you know, I have relational self, I have an embodied self, I have a shadow side that's part of me too. It's part of the true, my truest nature. 
I have a side that's like full of light and love and wants the best for everybody in the world. Like all of these things are together who I am. And it's that voice, the voice that is that comes from an acknowledgement and and a, a the ability to embrace the complexity that is the self that I think can be trusted. It takes a lot of work to become truly conscious of self. And especially when you've been, you know, you've spent time in that those high control environments. And I would argue that people who are saying, I, I'm trusting myself by say, thinking that I don't need a vaccine or whatever, I would disagree with that. I think that people are generally trusting other voices. You know, they've given over their authority and their the control over their own decision-making to some other force. And so I would just push back against anybody who says that that's where they're getting their information from is from some sort of sense of deep and true self. I would be like, really? Okay, let's unpack that a little bit. And I think that uh, so a part of that shadow self that you're talking about, Bonnie, that often leads us to that negative inward place comes from that place of scarcity, which I think is from outside of us. The self that is in us, that is kind and compassionate, the true self, I would say, if there is one, is one that is that leans into abundance and the trusting of others and believing in the good of humanity. For me, when I'm when I'm trying to navigate, like whose voice is this? You know, who but to whose authority am I listening? My own or somebody else's? I'm always checking in to say, is this response gracious and kind, or is this a scarcity response? And if it is a scarcity response, it typically isn't my voice then. I'm listening to other voices or other exterior voices that are uh, inviting me to be concerned or to be preserving. Because I think in general, the nature is to trust. The inner voice is to say we are connected. We can be grounded in in graciousness and kindness. Um, that's just what I think. And I, I also think that we don't, I mean, this is natural for us as humans, but I think we were also, or at least I was, taught this in my former context is the idea that unity equals conformity. You can't have unity without it. And I think that we don't lean enough into conflict, conflict with others, conflict with ourselves. So when we hit those speed bumps of here's the story or the narrative, I was told who I am, sinner, child of God, already conflicting, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Uh, and then when I experience something in life, in relationship that pushes against that story I've been given, we're, we're told to avoid the conflict by pushing that part of us down. So we have all these attachments to what story we're supposed to be a part of and what story is going to destroy ourselves. How do we undo those attachments? How do we undo those narratives that have been put on us and discover we are not our story? We just have stories. And, and like, what are some of the things that we can do or we did personally to kind of unbreak those attachments. I mean, this is this is like such a hard one because I, I don't believe for one second that I've found my true self. I think it's a process. But I do believe I've been in, in the space with others who are more like self-aware 
you know, maybe they didn't grow up with the same baggage that I did. And it feels weird to me because it's like my whole way of thinking and being and relating is, you know, very deeply flawed and, you know, you know, just kind of messed up. So when I'm with somebody who's truly operating out of their authentic self, it just feels like I'm not exactly sure how to interpret. I'm not exactly sure how to communicate. It's it's like the person is different enough that it's very noticeable to me and and troubling. And it, it there's just a lot of work to do. I think the first mistake, pitfall, whatever you want to call it, that is we could get into is to think of the self as a, a fixed entity, that it's like some sort of a, a kernel that you just have to figure out how to uncover or discover or go on the treasure hunt to find, recalling some of our last conversation about treasure hunts. My metaphysics, anyways, doesn't see self in that way. It sees self. Self is a process. Self is an ever-changing, ever-expanding reality. Each of us in our bodies and in our like soul spirits that we carry around in this earth on this earth during our lifetimes, we have a unique process, self-process that we we embody and that we carry and that we use when we engage with people and but it's not fixed and it's ever connected to every other self. So yeah, so you're it's it's in relationships, so there's always the giving and taking that's involved in being in relationship and then there's also the process itself. So it's it's all very complex, very expansive and uh, the lie, the, the story lie that we're told, I think, is that it's simple, it's clear, it's defined, you know, it's sick, and there's a, a remedy, a cure. Like, all of those stories are, in my mind, so incomplete and short-sighted and unhelpful. So it's more like it's not really like a discovery process as much as it is a an awakening or a consciousness. I keep coming back to that word, word and I'm not sure exactly why, but a consciousness to I don't and I'm I'm going to I'm going to use language that feels sounds really woo-woo and probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but because language falls short sometimes, but I it's it's a it's a consciousness, an awareness, an awakening to who we are that's different from all the other selves out there, and yet it's also who we are that is in relationship to all the other selves out there. One thing that your your thoughts are causing me to think about is maybe approaching this as in in singular terms is really inhibiting in unhealthy ways. Maybe we in and of ourselves are somewhat of a plurality of selves that come together and are constantly interacting, sometimes in supportive ways, sometimes in harmful ways. And 
that idea of a singular self, that kernel you were talking about. I wonder if that might be why we struggle so much. Well, I think that goes back to one right way, right? I mean, yeah. the we grew up believing that there was one way to everything, one right way. The invitation, again, you will continue to hear us say is, just start going. <laughs> Don't, it doesn't, right. ma- doesn't matter yeah. the direction, right. just start going. I mean, this is where Enneagram language can be helpful, right? I mean, this is, the Enneagram helps us to see that shadow side and to see the benefits of some of those things that we might characterize as our identity or who we are. But even those things fall short of the complexity of who we are, I think is what you were saying earlier, Bonnie. And so then what we reach for is story. If I can add all of these things, maybe then I am the sum of these things. And that isn't true either. We are not the sum of our stories. We have the ability to sort of walk away from these. These are stories about us. They are not us, right? And these are all really important pieces of our direction, but they do not have to be the ultimate end right? I mean, again, I say this all the time, but one of the things I love best about your relationship, uh, Rajiv and Bonnie, is this question that I hear, I have heard you ask on multiple occasions to one another, who are you today? Who are you today? One of our Christmas episodes, I think it was, we were asking, we went around asking questions. And I think, Rajiv, you asked Bonnie, like, what is your favorite food today? Right. Um, because you knew that it may be different. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's how not only how we should hold ourselves, but how we should hold one another. The ability to say you are more complex than you were yesterday, right? You There is something truer in you hopefully today than even yesterday. Mm-hmm. And how do we honor that? Right. And and that that dynamic goes in every direction, right? Sure. Yeah. You know, you're more complete than you were yesterday. And then the next day you might... You're a little more confused than you were right. yesterday. You might you might be an asshole. Today. Yeah, and you know, so some patience, <laughs> tolerance, and persistence to, you know, just hang in there. But I, I think that's exactly what you're talking about. That's the point of journey is finding those journey partners that can be in that with you. Yeah, thank you, Casey. That language is so much more clear and helpful. <laughs> thank you. I think that this is you know. Again, Enneagram for like the depths of who we are is one of my favorite topics. But I think even more than that, I think for me this matters because as a queer person, that journey of struggling to up against people who told me that I was bad and broken, right? And I think that women experience this a lot also, that it's uh, this, this sense of like you have no control over your body and it is society who tells you who you are and how you should be in the world. And for some of us that we shouldn't even exist, period. And so this this matters to me so much because I have found that in my own coming out, there are people who come out alongside of me. Always. Always. It's always been this way. And I think that that is one of the truest parts of who we are, is that we all long to come out. Not as queer folks, but as people. We long for people to hear hear the hear our story, long to be known. And so when you take the risk of coming out in whatever way you do that, whenever you speak to the truest parts of who you are, you will always find people who are willing to walk alongside of you and who will be threatened by you. Because there are people who long 
for partners, like you were saying, Rajiv. And there are also people who are threatened at the idea that they might have to do the work of coming out because they feel it might be too scary. And the work is always worth it. The road, the road is always worth it. But getting there or believing that that's true, I think is 90% of the process. Obviously, all of us have had varying degrees of identity put on us, you know, depending on a variety of different factors. So I'm, I'm wondering for you all, like, what are some things that pushed you to kind of start the internal work of untying some of that? And, and maybe that might be helpful for our listeners to be like, okay, here's what I've been given. I'm really struggling with this. Where, what can I, how can I zero in focus and attention and energy to a place that's going to at least a little bit unravel so that I can discover at least who I am in this moment and, and maybe where that's, that's leading me. Yeah. I think, thank you for keep pushing us back to like, what are some practical applications here? Cause we can, we can wax eloquent on all kinds of uh, theoretical things, but I think it's really helpful to review, you know, if you, if you weren't given the opportunity to go through adolescence in the most selfish, delicious way that everybody between the ages of 13 to 25, whatever it is now, should be able to be so incredibly selfish because that's how you become centered, grounded, and have the things that you need to work with to then enter the adult life where at some point you're going to need to mentor young ones growing up around you. And that's part of what being an adult means. So yeah, I think like reviewing whatever age you're at right now, reviewing the decisions that you made in your life, like life's decisions to have children, to get married, to not get married, to come out, to not, you know, all of these decisions, like life altering decisions that you've made, go back, put them on some sort of a map, a timeline or whatever, and then take a serious look at each one and and ask the question, like, was that me making that decision? Was that my community's, was it pressure from my community that that sort of channeled me into that decision? From what place did this decision come to be? And then there may be some grieving in that. And I think one of the most powerful ways to awaken self is through grief. This, because the truest, deepest, authentic self knows how to grieve. Once one experiences grief, and sometimes it's grief over, you know, like, I didn't make this decision, and now I'm living in the wake of it, and I'm responsible, and I am going to have to incorporate, you know, for the rest of my life, this decision is going to impact me. I'm kind of sad that it wasn't me that actually made the decision, you know, that I, I have to grieve this now. I have to grieve that. And I have to then use that information that I get from the grief as I think about my future life and things that I'll teach the young people in my life or whatever. Yeah, that's one place to start, like actually reflecting on those life-altering forks in the road and really consider, did you make that decision to turn left or right or go straight? 
did you make the decision to incorporate these people into your life or to not, you know, all just really deeply consider and see what awakens in that process. A question that a mentor friend of mine currently has been asking some of us, Quinita Roberson, she was on the podcast, is what decisions might you make uh, if you were loving yourself? Yeah. Those are the sorts of questions I think we're trying to get at when we're talking about an informed self moving forward. I can tell you that I struggle with this question a lot. It's an important one, you know, for any of us who are seeking to continue to work towards finding self. What does it look like when you love yourself enough to make decisions that will impact you? Maybe, I mean, some of the hardest decisions we will make are the right ones, and they come with a toll and a cost, right? But um, when you when you can get to that place of loving yourself and advocating for yourself and speaking your truth, there's nothing more liberating than that. Right. And it comes at a cost. It's hard. That's right. But nothing more liberating and... Freedom is what we're, is where we're headed. Right. This is last, I mean, this goes back to our last conversation when Rajiv got a little squirmy when we were saying narrow is the road to life and those that find it are few. <laughs> and Rajiv was like, ah, oh, damn that. But I mean that, but the, but those narrow road moments are the toll bridges of our life. There have been times when I'm driving from Berkeley back to Sacramento where I forget that I need $5 or whatever. I mean, now, fortunately, I have my fast track. But there were moments where it was like, do I pay the toll, the 30 bucks or whatever, to keep going? Or do I turn back around and find a way? Sometimes it's worth it to just keep going. You pay the $30. Right. You know, you just pay the 30 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the hardest parts of coming to this, these realizations and going through the exercise that Bonnie, you were describing, and Casey, you were describing about thinking about past decisions, past choices, is trying to not react to them, but integrate what you discover into how you're going to make future decisions. Because we're making decisions all the time to either reaffirm a past decision or change the course of a past decision. You might decide something once. You might, you know, when you're a kid, you promise for life, right, to do, to be best friends or to never do this or that. And, you know, things change. Yeah, I imagine that for many people, and this was true of myself, is that when you start asking those questions and you start going down that path, there's a sense of feeling trapped. Hmm. Trapped by your past Mm -hmm. decisions, trapped by your current conditions and how they're going to affect your future, trapped by projecting the consequences of whatever decision you're going to make now into the future and what that's going to look like and how it's going to turn out to varying degrees, right? Depending upon where you are in life. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's not, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing. Yeah. And that, that sense of being trapped by your decisions is part of, um, I think, what we're talking about when we're sa- when we say like you know we aren't our stories which is a lot easier to say <laughs> that's like such a great little short platitude it's a lot easier to say than it is to actually feel and live into there's the narrow road meaning only a few people actually go through this reflection process 
But then there's also the narrow road of never going through the reflection process, which then I think also is that that sense of being trapped because you're in such a small, confined story box that it's hard then to have a lot to work with when you are creating the future for yourself and for those people that you're in relationship with. Expanding the way we tell the story about ourselves, which happens in reflection and retrospect and looking back at the past in grieving things that we wish maybe had gone differently and also forgiving ourselves for for not doing this sooner or for staying at a place longer than we should have or, you know, all the many things that we can beat ourselves up about and also we can feel trapped about. By going into that, into the past and enlarging the way we tell a story about ourselves, it gives us so much more to work with as we put together the future, the cre- as we create the future, co-create the future. Because if only our life was just a product of our own decision-making. It isn't. It never is. Every single life, that's part of the complexity, is made up of one's decision, the decisions made by self, but also of all the decisions of the selves that we're in proximity to that impact us. So we're constantly creating with all of these things. And the larger you can make your story, the more you have to work with. That's a little process theology there that I have to throw in um, alongside the Enneagram as hopefully being helpful. Right. Because on one plane, our story is linear, right? Like we can't go into the past. However, we can recontextualize our past. So on another level, our timeline, our life is not linear. It can be reformed. It can be Mm -hmm. redeemed. If we want to yes. use that kind of, uh, you know, churchy language as we're kind of walking through that, so I think that that's a that's an important point because the moments, the physical moments, may be concrete. They happened the way mm-hmm. that they did, but the way that we choose to reinterpret them through our life is valuable, mm-hmm. and it makes so much more possible, and it's ever forming. You know, like even the process of coming out and Casey, you can speak to this better than the rest of us here. But, you know, in conversations I've had, it's like it's a it's it's an ongoing thing. It's not a moment. Right. And for all of us to as we claim these identities that are so that you speak of, Casey, that are so deep in us and are our most true and authentic selves the revelation of those identities is just an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing process. And so, like, yes, there's concretized moments like this happened. There are facts. Facts are real. And also those facts through the interpretation, through the understanding, through through the connection to self, they can expand to make more things possible for us. Yeah, I absolutely, I I agree with that, Bonnie. I think that uh, I I tell young people all the time: you are always coming out. You will always come out. Uh, coming out is a process, right? It's not a one and done. It's not a sit your family down at Thanksgiving and destroy right. everything uh, and burn it to the floor. That's a model, but um, there is always a process of coming out. 
and it is a life's worth, lifetime's worth, right? Another thing I want to speak to, I think that it's important as we go through this, is that we have the capacity to redeem our stories, sure, but there are some things that are just not redeemable, right? There are there are things that happen to us. I'm thinking of violence and trauma that are things that we don't need to pick up and say, how can I redeem this? Sometimes things are just, they're shit. They're tragic. And you can leave those things to be what they were or are and never have to move back to that place. I think it's important for us to name that because I I know many of our listeners, uh, some of them have experienced some severe trauma in their religious uh, upbringing. I don't want them to begin to hear us say something like, well, God can redeem anything. You know, uh, everything happens for a reason. Beloved friends, we are not saying that. We are not saying that. Nope. And um, Mm -hmm. in this conversation, I think we'd be irresponsible to not encourage everyone to get professional therapeutic support in in these processes as, as part of your journey. Not the Christian counselor who has an office in the church basement, but like real licensed professional therapeutic support. Many of us have done it. I've done it. I'm still in it. And it's it's been monumentally helpful. Right. Any 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 final words from anyone before we kind of close out this portion of our ongoing discussion on Beyond the Binary. Yeah, I think, um, I know we talked a little bit about the shadow side of self. It, you know, the sinful nature and all, and, and being a worthless person, except for the worth that one has in Christ and you know, all of that sort of language, that we can sometimes think of the shadow side as, as, as being that as being the sinful nature. And I just want to be clear that that's not at all what I meant. That some of the identities, and I'm speaking to women in particular, um, but others too, that some of our identities that are put on us is to be helping and kind and good. Never say anything that's going to, to discourage or hurt somebody to always be seen as the the gentle, kind soul. And the shadow side can be really helpful in kind of like nuancing that identity a bit and maybe even rejecting those identities of being gentle and kind, that each of us does have the capacity to be fierce and angry and rage, and that that can be also our true and authentic selves. And it can cause us to say things that aren't always typically kind, but may cause hurt in somebody else because that antagonism or that hurt can actually facilitate the next the next step in, you know, in this co-creation. I guess I just wanted to, in case there was a question about that, I just wanted to to say the shadow side of ourselves is something to work with, especially if the story that we've been told is that we don't have that or we need to somehow suppress that into submission. You know, I like to just say, work with it if you need to, to help to claim the truest sense of oneself. I got nothing to add. I would just sort of close out with 
in these moments when you feel overwhelmed by your past, when grief begins to swell in you, my hope is that you can find gratitude for, for where you are. You, you are safe. You have made it this far. Gratitude often is the antidote to the things that we often are sort of bound to. Envy, regret, sorrow. And so my invitation for any of you friends who find yourself, especially after this conversation, which has been all over the place and probably pretty heavy, is uh, just to reach for gratitude, even in the moment. Can you take a deep breath in? Can you notice what's around you? Start there. Because at the end of the day, you have survived this far. And there is gratitude for that. At least I have gratitude for that. Amen. Well said, everyone. For those of you listening, let us know what you think. You can add your voice to this particular conversation by commenting in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 187. And in the show notes, you'll find relevant links and a complete list of all the ways to like, follow, and contact the show. That's irenacast.com slash 187. And if you haven't already, please consider joining our email list. Uh, our email list is the best way to stay updated on all things Irenacast, not just the episodes that we're releasing, but the events that we're doing, upcoming courses, uh, other places that your favorite hosts in the world have popped up on other shows so check that out um, and you can there's a there's a link in the show notes irenacast.com slash 187 to sign up for that email list and of course to get more information about our next intersection meeting which is happening on february 3rd through march 10th it's a weekly meeting at 7 p.m pacific standard time and you can get more information again in the show notes irenacast.com slash 187 or really the irenacast.com just go to our website any episode's going to have the information um, on all that kind of stuff so please check that out on the other side of the music, we are going to be playing a little game called Title Me This. We are on the other side of the music, and we are going to be playing Title Me This. How this works is each of us, and we're, we're calling this the Epic Drama Edition. So how this is going to work is that we have all procured, curated, different plot synopsis from some sort of fictional drama, whether it's coming from a book, movie, graphic novel, whatever. And each of us are going to read our synopsis, and then the other hosts have to create a title that they think best captures what we just heard. So uh, let's do this. Let's see how this works. I'm just going to start around the table that I'm sitting at and go to my right. And Bonnie, we're starting with you. So um, it's important that you know that both of these works stories I respect greatly. Just know that before you make fun of it. That's not going to stop me. <laughs> <laughs> and the creators of these stories I respect. Okay, so here is the, um, here's the synopsis. When Lennox McLeod uncovers the long-held secret that his real father was not a Highlander at all, he feels torn in two. Setting off on a quest to discover his true identity, 
he encounters the beautiful tapestry weaver, Nora Brody, at Sterling Castle. Sparks fly between them. And when a shameful incident drives her away from Sterling, Lennox agrees that Nora can travel with him, and love blooms. In London, a wondrous fate awaits Lennox, but Nora is convinced there is no place for her in his future. What title do you give that? He is not your daddy, bye girl, bye. (laughs) There you go. I was going to go daddy issues or (laughs) daddy issues. Just another United Kingdom love story (laughs) (laughs) of which there are so many great ones. Um, So should I tell you the real title? White people and their swords. (laughs) Do we know this author? We do. We know this author. So um, the title is Quest of the Highlander. And it's by a friend of mine, actually. Um, her her pen name is Cynthia Wright, and she writes all of these amazing historical romance fiction books. She's awesome. Yeah. All right. All right, Casey, you're up. Okay, so this is a story about a young man named Elliot who befriends an alien who's just trying to get home. And you wouldn't believe it, but the government uh, catches wind of this. Believe it. <laughs> <laughs> the government catches wind of this and tries to catch the alien. And so this quest is this this young man, Elliot, trying his best to get his new friend home. When bicycles fly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> just purely based on the synopsis you gave us (laughs) and not the knowledge that i have of where that (laughs) synopsis comes from um i would say how do you how do you come up with a new title for et immigration report (laughs) i don't know (laughs) Um, I just want to say like bad government or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Is that everyone? Did you? Yep. Yeah. E.T. So that was, that we, was mine. E.T. We, <laughs> that was great. All right. The family O from a prominent capital in Asia is torn apart by adultery. Mrs. O has caught her husband having an affair with their children's former governess and threatens to leave him. Mr. O is somewhat remorseful, but mostly dazed and uncomprehending. His sister, wife of the a government official, arrives at the O's to mediate. Eventually, she is able to bring reconciliation to the couple. Sounds like a late night Cinemax film, Nanny Diaries. <laughs> I don't know. Reconciled. <laughs> Can you read the first part about how the husband responds to this again? Yeah. 
The husband is somewhat remorseful, but mostly dazed and uncomprehending. <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite part. <laughs> my title is Dazed and Uncomprehending Men. <laughs> That's my title. <laughs> Why are they always dazed and uncomprehending? Why are they always feel that, that, that way? Uh, uh, a I handbook on men. Huh? Dazed and uncomprehending. Yeah, yeah that's, that's 2021, <laughs> men in 2021. Yeah. 2020, 20. 2019, like, come Let, on. Let's have yeah. an end by 2025. That's How about right. that? That'd that's be right. nice. No more days and uncomprehending. <laughs> Wait, what was the name of the title? It's uh, um, Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. That's my that's my fancy one. I have a trashy one next. <laughs> oh, yeah, high-minded <laughs> literature. <laughs> I'm going to break that trend right now. <laughs> uh, a widowed writer accidentally goes into the wrong theater and he becomes obsessed with the male star of a teen movie called Hot Pants College Part 2. Oh my God. He embarks on a journey to meet the young man and begins to truly discover himself. <laughs> Fast and Furious 12? <laughs> Hopping in Hot Pants? <laughs> <laughs> oh man hot rods and hot pants <laughs> I don't know dazed and uncomprehending <laughs> I could go all day with this I love this Jeff this is a good one it's okay we're all learning the game gotta come up with a scenario we can work with here alright what is it Oh, it's a movie called, it's a 1997 movie called Love and Death on Long Island. Love and Death. It's with John Hurt and uh, Jason Priestley. Hmm. If anyone's interested. Casey. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm checking that. 1997. <laughs> that's like, that's actually like a real movie. Yeah. Like a Hollywood. Oh, it sounds exactly like a real movie. I mean. I mean, not like a, you know, straight to video film or whatever. Yeah. Sounds like every movie of the mid 90s. Uh, good point. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> so, my turn? Yes. Okay. I'm going to change a couple names to protect the innocent. To protect the innocent. Yes. In a series of letters, Bob, the captain of a ship bound for the North Pole, recounts to his sister back in England the progress of his dangerous mission. Then there's a bunch of impassable ice. He's trapped. Then Bob meets a doctor who has been traveling by dog-drawn sledge across the ice and weakened by the cold. So Bob takes this doctor aboard the ship, helps nurse him back to health, and in exchange, really, for fantastic tales of this doctor's experimentation. <laughs> I'm going to go with the doctor semen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeff, you win. You, you win that round. Except he wasn't the ship guy. But he nursed the semen back to health. So it's oh, the doctor. No, and the no, semen? no. The semen nursed the doctor back right, to right, health. Right, right, right. Oh. The doctor was the weak so it's one. The semen the doctor. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
experimenting with doctors. (laughs) (laughs) Playing doctor. Playing doctor, doctor, yeah. All right, well, for all those literary people out there, this was Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Very different from the movie. Mm -hmm. The book is very different. The doctor was Victor Frankenstein. Never, never read the book. It's good. It's a really good well, book. In the movie, it's, you know, Frankenstein's not the monster, right? Well, it depends which movie. And he's the doctor, oh, maybe. Yeah, it's Frankenstein. <laughs> Frankenstein. <laughs> Was that the Gene Wilder adaptation? Yes, <laughs> best one. Okay. This, by the way, I think is one of the gayest movies ever made. (laughs) Jose, my husband disagrees, but if you watch it in the right lens, you will understand. After learning that a stranger has been accidentally killed near their rural homes, four Oregon boys decide to go see the body. On the way, they encounter a mean junk man and marsh full of leeches as they also learn more about one another and their very different lives. Just a lark at first, the boys' adventure evolves into a defining event in their lives. I think I'm with your husband on this one. (laughs) I am not. I think Stand By Me is a challenge of modern masculinity, and Mm. to label it gay is... Offensive. <laughs> You're picking these classics for Casey. I know. You're reading. I'm trying to like disconnect myself from what I know about the entire movie and mm-hmm. just go off of what you said. Right, right. That's what I'm trying to do too because I keep coming to that leech field where he faints because he's got the leech on his, you know, penis. <laughs> he passes out. Such a I, great scene. I think a good title is Boyfriends. Yes. That's a good one. Oh. Yeah. Boyfriends. Boyfriends, <laughs> Boyfriends part one. Kind of it kind of works. Yeah. Boyfriends part one. Hmm. I'm just going to say dead on arrival. <laughs> <laughs> the The original story is called The Body, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Stephen, Stephen King, King short yeah. story. Yeah. I, I got nothing. I love that movie, though. Stand by me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I love it. <laughs> All right, Rajiv. All right. This story explores the unorthodox romance, a love triangle between a human, a misunderstood vampire, and a werewolf. In this allegory of Mormon propaganda, we delve into... We delve, I'll explain, we we delve into the secret lives of an ancient rainforest. (laughs) You clearly made this, you're making this up as you go. (laughs) The secret lives of a rainforest? Oh, within a rainforest. And it's a, a vampire and a what? A werewolf and a human. The secret, what did you call that? And they're in a rainforest. <laughs> and what was their relationship? It was like a twisted love triangle. Oh, okay. Twisted love triangle. <laughs> Mythical thruple. 
<laughs> Mythical truffle. Good. Um, then you have to throw in Mormon propaganda, which, okay. I'll explain. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Werewolves and eternal planets. Mm. <laughs> right. How about bonded forever? <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> Did you, you already guessed? I already came up. With oh, oh yeah. right, right, right. Okay, so I mean, it's Twilight. Yeah. And the author is Mormon. So. So my my conclusion is being a former Seventh Day Adventist, first cousins of the Mormons, it's like the vampires of the Mormons, like these actually very decent species that is misunderstood, and when the fog lifts, they sparkle. Like diamonds. Hmm. There's a lot of purity culture subtext yep. in the story as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the whole mating for life imprint, and blah, blah, blah. Imprint. The You've been imprinted and, before birth or something. Yep. Yeah. All that stuff. It's mm -hmm. in there. I mean, I don't say it negatively necessarily. Very popular for its time. Yeah. In its time. Yeah. Our younger son loved that whole series. Mm -hmm. We actually made a trip to Forks on our way to Canada. <laughs> Shine bright like a diamond. <laughs> mm -hmm. So you did your Twilight pilgrimage. <laughs> we did. That's how much we love our kids. <laughs> All right. Last one. Uh, a London publisher recounts a lunchtime reunion with a former lover. An existential, existential, I can't even say that. A parable of which <laughs> of a wistful journey through youth and the excitement and bitterness of that time trapped in the mind. A form of romance is reevaluated by a rose-colored filter of time. Time has moved on, but the past has trapped the author. Ooh. Time marches on. TikTok prison. <laughs> <laughs> I look, I feel like there's so many teenagers <laughs> who are experiencing that right for now. For sure. Real. Oh, yeah. Double meaning. Yeah. I'm stuck in the time thing, too. Time capsule. Time capsule. <laughs> uh, the actual title is The Song of Lunch. It's a 2010 film with Alan Rickman and Emma Watson. Like, Emma Thompson. You're, you're, sorry. You're, you're picking these like Hollywood films that no one's heard of. Right. That's. Yeah, That's, so they, you know, I'm not gonna mm -hmm. throw out ET or anything. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say, you go with the classic shade, like ET and Stand by Me. I was just, I'm, I'm all about the description. I wanted a description that would like bring about a good title. I was trying to create movement, but you know, we each approach this game differently. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. All right. Uh, with that being said, that will do it for us this week. If you've enjoyed Arenacast and would like to join the work we are doing, please consider donating to our PayPal link at arenacast.com slash PayPal. We're committed to keeping the show for free for listeners, but there are costs involved and your financial support always helps. That's arenacast.com slash PayPal. Arenacast is also a nonprofit organization, so your donations are tax deductible. And you can also support the show simply by making sure that you follow the show on wherever you listen to your podcasts. If the platform allows it, leave a rating and or review. We'd love to hear from you. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. And this is Rajiv. Thanks for joining the conversation. 